Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 149 of F Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's episode features a fellow Coloradan and large format film landscape photographer, Alex Burke. Alex's work is diverse, but is largely focused on the mountains of Colorado, as well as the plains and prairies of eastern Colorado. He's been working on a very interesting project where he has been photographing the interaction between man and land in the plains, which is really fascinating. Alex survives by selling his work at art shows across the country, which we also talked about over on Patreon. Well, on the podcast this week, we covered a wide variety of topics, including his current projects, making more meaningful photos that go beyond what's beautiful, backpacking with large format film, composing on large formats, getting stuck in the past techniques as a film photographer, and current trends in landscape photography. As mentioned over on Patreon this week, join Alex and I for a 22-minute bonus episode on art shows, what sells at art shows, how to price your photography, and a discussion about limited edition versus open edition prints. And if you enjoyed hearing Alex talk about his work and want to learn more about photographing locally or getting into large format photography, he's offering a 20% discount on his ebooks for Patreon supporters. Just head over to patreon.com slash fstop and listen to get that discount on his awesome ebooks. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Alex Burke, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Man, no problem. We've got uh, we've got you over there in the front range of Colorado, and I'm down here in the southwest corner of Colorado. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so I guess, you know, for people that maybe aren't familiar with you and your work, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so my name is Alex Burke. I live in Greeley, Colorado, and I'm a full-time large format landscape photographer. So I use 4x5 sheet film, and um, I shoot a wide variety of subjects. It's all landscape, um, but I do a lot of prairie, Great Plains, uh, eastern Colorado, as well as backpacking with a 4x5, mountains, you know, anywhere really. But landscapes is my specialty here, so. Yeah, nice. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, you spent a lot of your time growing up in the Estes Park area around Rocky Mountain National Park? Yes, I did. I actually, uh, we moved to Estes Park when I was about nine, so I went to middle and high school there. So um, it's kind of interesting. You appreciate that landscape a little more once you leave it. So it was once I was a teenager is when I started kind of enjoying hiking a little more. I didn't really even love it as a younger child, but (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of funny how that works. But I started to get a little bit, you know, enjoyed it more as a teenager, and then I moved away uh, when I was 18 to Phoenix, which was a total change going from a town of 5,000 to a city of 5 million. And right. then I found, you know, how much I really missed that landscape. And I got out to the desert as much as possible. You know, I would just drive. I was on the north end of town. I could get out of Phoenix in about a half hour and just be in the desert where you'd hear your ears ringing. It was so quiet, you know, just nothing but, I mean, not even a cricket, just silence. And I enjoyed that quietness away from the city, being outdoors. And that's kind of how I started messing around with photography a little bit and uh, just kind of primed the pump there for what would come later. Yeah. So I'm a, it sounds like uh, you haven't always been a full-time uh, 
film photographer. What were you doing before that? Right. So I actually moved to Phoenix to go to automotive school, Universal Technical Institute, actually, of all things. And then uh, from Phoenix, I got hired by Volkswagen and I worked, uh, I went to a Volkswagen school in Pennsylvania and then worked in Maryland for a couple of years and then ended up in Greeley, Colorado at a Volkswagen dealership and worked there for about 10 years. And uh, the last uh, few years I was there, I went part time and was able to make a full time transition into photography about uh, four or five years ago. Oh, okay, cool. So it's been relatively recent. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome, man. It's been a great transition, and I I wouldn't look back. So the business I started in 2012 officially as a business, and then it was a few more years of still working part-time before I uh, went full-time in early 2016. So Sweet. Yeah. So having kind of grown up in in and around Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado, I'm curious um, if – if at all, and how did that inform your journey into photography? Well, you know, it got, I'd say it just got me outdoors, got me understanding what that's about. And like I said, I missed it more once I went away. It was right. once I left it, I realized how much I wanted. So when I lived out east, I'd find myself any free time I had, I'd be in Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. I lived about two hours from there. So just being outdoors, you know, people, especially with a lot of city folk out there, they thought I was crazy, you know, leaving the house at three in the morning to be somewhere. They thought I'd get murdered in the dark there. Like people always think you do in the mountains. And, uh, you know, I just loved it. It was just uh, away from the cities because there's a lot of cities out there. It's kind of just a big sprawl. And uh, it's just a really appreciated. I think being in the mountains as a child helped really you know, understand how to get out there and hike and what it's all about and, you know, appreciate it a little bit more. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about kind of your work, your body of work. I mean, you have some fantastic uh, images that you've made um, that are on your website. And I was really curious to ask you kind of, how did you get drawn to the types of subjects that you enjoy photographing? Because it seems like uh, based on kind of what I've looked at and whatnot, there's a relatively wide range of subjects that you seem to be drawn to. Yeah, you'll kind of see my body of work get splits up into two main categories. One is the natural beauty of the mountains, and the other is the prairie, which has more of the man-made touches to it, whether it is you know, it could just be as simple as a fence or an irrigation ditch, or there's just the look of the prairie, which is always a little bit touched by man. I mean, this, you know, we settled across the country well over a hundred years ago, and it's the whole area has that look of wild land plus touched by man. And I have a different mindset when I go after both. The main thing is I just want to photograph all the time, and it's not always feasible to go up into the mountains. Uh, photographing the prairie started back when I had a job, and you know, worked full time and I could really only sometimes get out for a day on the weekend or I could just get out for an evening or morning sunrise sunset. And so something nearby me, I didn't really think I'd live in Greeley for so long, but I actually came to quite love the landscape around me. There's just a unique look to it that I love. So I think mostly I ended up photographing the prairie because I lived in the prairie and um, I just had to photograph something and I ended up falling (laughs) in love with it. And now I almost couldn't see living somewhere else. I love that um, one hour to the west of me is Rocky Mountain National Park. One hour away is wide open prairie, the Pawnee Buttes and areas that are Mm. pretty open. And really, you can be out there. You're always alone out there. There's not crowds. There's no buses unloading people, you know, to the nearest grain elevator or anything like that. It's always yourself out there just experiencing it, which Mm -hmm. I really love. Mm -hmm. So, 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you have found solitude and peace um, and a connection to nature in the in the plains, ar- surrounded by you know f- farming equipment, which yeah, is really absolutely. <laughs> really interesting. There, it's almost more solitude. I mean, think if you go to Bear Lake, that parking lot can hold five hundred cars, and every morning in the summer, it's got five hundred cars by seven a.m. I mean, you're not really alone out there. In the winter, you might be or on a Tuesday morning. You know, if you get up there at three in the morning, you've got some time alone. But uh, sometimes there's more solitude on the prairie. I mean, it's just never going to be a crowd wandering out that way. If I go to the Pawnee Buttes, which is one trailhead out there, you know, sometimes I see four or five cars out there, but it's not, there's not these crowds. So there is a lot of solitude to it. It's just as quiet. It is open. I mean, there's something about the 360 views of being open all the way around flat. Mm. And, you know, when you're, you're not boxed in this mountain valley, you're just exposed. I mean, the first time I spent you know, I slept on the prairie. I biked out there to the Pawnee Grasslands with a friend, and we didn't even bring a tent. We just camped out on the grass. And, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night, just like not with a tent or anything. You wake up and you're like, whoa, it's really open. And you're just all around you. I mean, it was almost shocking how exposed you are. You know, it's quite quite amazing, actually. Very different experience in the mountains. Yeah, it's funny. I um, I grew up most of my life living in Colorado Springs on the eastern side of town, which is pretty wide open, like you're describing. Yeah. And, um, about 20, 20, gosh, 2014, I moved to Portland, Oregon for two years. And, um, I was, you know, in the inner Southeast part of town, relatively close to downtown. And there's, you know, all the buildings are at least two to five stories tall in all directions. And I was immediately struck by how much I missed having that open view 360 around me where I could just see this see the sky. Yeah, absolutely. Know? Yeah. And I, I, I didn't think I was going to miss that, but man, it really had an impact on me as a nature guy. I, I don't really know how to describe that, but yeah, people talk about the, sometimes feeling the prairie is boring or a flyover state or empty, but it just takes a different mindset to view it. And I think once you leave it, that's when you realize like, wow, that open space had its appeal. You know, I, I'd, feel, I'd feel weird boxed in around a bunch of skyscrapers. So it would really kind of freak me out. Yeah, it's funny too. I um I recently was at a photography conference in uh, the Yosemite Valley, which you know you're surrounded by these crazy, insane granite cliffs in all directions, which is stunning and beautiful and awe-inspiring. Uh, but it wasn't until uh, the end of the conference I drove back down into Fresno, and a friend of mine, David Hunter, took me to a wildlife refuge. Um, in kind of north of town, and it's kind of super in those wide. hills there, or that kind of like flat rolling hill super, area. Not even rolling hills; it was all farmland. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like way out uh, outside of town, um, and it was the same thing. Just lots of farm farming, lots of dairy and equipment like that. But then mm-hmm. just open prairie, and I was like, wow, I can see the sky again. You know, it's yeah, it, it's amazing to just like really see all around you. There's something special about it. Yeah, and it's so fascinating how just in a very short amount of time like that, where you can have that stark contrast, it really gives you that appreciation of, of kind of what it does to you psychologically to be, to be freed that way. I don't even know how else to describe it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about your current project uh, that you're working on, which I think has a lot to do with this idea of, um, you know, the rapidly growing, you know, prairie towns and thing, you know, 
stuff out on the prairie. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you got going on with that project. Yeah, so really the prairie, what's well, different than the middle of the country where Colorado, we have a big population growth going on. So what I started to notice around me is that these old prairie towns are getting pretty much bulldozed to make room for new suburban housing. So mm-hmm. I just don't really know when one of these old prairie towns is going to change massively, when it might lose its old grain elevator that's been there for decades or 100 years even, when it might lose some unique character about it. So I've kind of been, it's almost been a documentary project, but it also is just kind of personal and it's fun. I mean, it kind of started as I was, winter was coming, didn't really know, you know, it started last winter really is when I really focused on this and I didn't quite have an idea of what to photograph. And I started going further and further away from my house, looking for things on the prairie, just getting ideas. And then I found these objects. He started out with windmills and old prairie homes and stuff like that. And then it kind of moved into, I was realizing the character of these prairie towns themselves. There's quite a bit to it. And then I started bringing my circle closer back to home and seeing these grain elevators and the towns that are near me and how many different angles and views there are of it. And then quite often when I go out for a sunrise, you know, or the uh, sunset, I look and one of them's being knocked down. I mean, it actually happens quite a bit. So I'm like, oh, it's time to, you know, it's kind of good that I'm photographing some of these. So you never know what history, history they might be losing. So it's just different. It's not really, they're not necessarily looked at as historical structures, but they have a lot of character around them. So. Yeah. And it's interesting because you're, you're kind of, painting a story of, you know, urban sprawl and kind of this, this, the problem that gets associated with kind of unfettered development in terms of kind of what the impact is that we don't necessarily get to see because most of us don't visit those places until after, uh, you know, after they're built, built up. Absolutely. Um, You don't see, you know, you don't move there until there's a condo for you to live in. So it's really works. So yeah, it's funny. A friend of mine lives sort of near uh, Denver International Airport, way out there, and you know, for years that was just open prairie. In yeah, all it looks like why they build that airport forty miles from town is what it looked like, you know. And now it's <laughs> now it's full, <laughs> filling yeah, up. Yeah, isn't that anyway. isn't that crazy? I mean, it's interesting though. Like if you drive some of those roads that go out to some of those developments, you'll still see those properties where people held out and didn't sell their sell mm-hmm. their land. So you've got like. You've got like one lot that has like a grocery store and a bunch of condos around it. And then you have the lot next to it that has like an old farmhouse yeah. and a bunch of horses and pigs. And, and you'll see next where to- there's the road, the road that they hoped would be able to go through that farm, but the farmer hasn't sold it yet. So, you know, the road just dead ends and right. he's hold, holding, holding on to that property until he can make more money or until usually I think it's when once a family member passes, you know, and the, ch- the children don't want to take care of the farm. I think right. it's usually when it passes hands and then like, let's sell it and make a subdivision. So, but yeah, it is interesting. interesting is we're in between some periods right now of old versus new there. Well, and it's interesting too. I feel like we're kind of in some ways, I mean, I'm, I never grew up in the rural area myself, but it feels like we're kind of losing part of our identity as a country in some ways because of that. Yeah, I mean, a Best Buy looks like a Best Buy anywhere in the country. There's really not much variation there, right. so we're kind of we're kind of losing the, you know, the character of the small towns, the way they were built differently. I even like the prairie towns are built so differently depending on where you go. If you see Kansas, just has a different feel about them in western Kansas versus even eastern Kansas. 
when you go up to Montana, the grain elevators are so much more decorative and they're just a way different look than Colorado's. I've, you know, when I drive to Glacier, I'll see the grain elevators out there and they have these murals painted on them that have been faded for 20, 30 years, but they're, <laughs> they're very different looking. So it's kind of interesting. Each part of the country ended up kind of building their towns quite a bit differently. They weren't just cookie cutter and, mm-hmm. you know, manufactured at all. So I'm curious for, for this project that it seems like you kind of just stumbled into in terms of finding something that caught your interest. Do you have any long-term plans of what you want to do with this work? That I'm a little on the uncertain. I'm in the creation phase, like massively in the creation phase. And at some point I have to realize, you know, what's the point of it? What do I want to do do with it? So, because it is, you know, it's fun to just go shoot and shoot something that means something to you, but it does need to connect at some point. And I would like to draw a little more into that. I did get into the Cherry Creek art show for the first time uh, with that body of work. So I'm going to have to figure out a way I want to present it. And, uh, you know, I'm going to have to work on prints of it. So, and I think that'll be fun because it's not, it wasn't really started as a marketable project. It was never, that was never the point of it. It was a personal project. And, uh, but at some point, there should be a way of presenting it, whether it's prints or a book or something. So, yeah, it's um, it's interesting. Uh, I think this is a fun segue to talk about, you know, creating uh, a body of work that maybe has more meaning than just p- pretty pictures. Um, yes, which is something I've been struggling with over the last couple of years because when I look at most of my work, you know, it's really just my appreciation and connection to nature and the places that I've been and, you know, the beauty that I see. Um, but it doesn't necessarily tell a story that I feel, I, I don't know that it does or not. Maybe someone will disagree, but um, it's funny. I just recently uh, awarded a uh, landscape photography conservation award to a photographer named J. Henry Fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sent me a copy of his book that's called Industrial Scars. And it's almost all aerial photography that kind of showcases, um, it's beautiful photography, but it showcases the, the, the damage that's being caused by the industrial requirements of our consumerism. And that's interesting. And, um, I just wanted to read you, I didn't mean to make this about him, but it was just, no problem. It just triggered me, but I just wanted to read you this little thing he wrote in his book that I really feel like kind of resonates with what kind of you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And he says, uh, quote, I make pictures about things that are important to me. My self-imposed guidelines are strict. An image must be both meaningful and beautiful. In my opinion, art that is beautiful but not meaningful is decoration. Art that is meaningful without beauty is pedantic. And I, I, that really resonated for me, but it was also like a, it was like a kind of a wake up call. (laughs) Yeah, that's a pretty good one. I mean, what you said about, you know, just making pretty pictures, that is landscape photography in a nutshell and has been for a long time. That is the struggle all of us have. And we go, I mean, I am guilty of the same thing, or I feel like I am. I go to the mountains, I go backpacking for a week. And, you know, I'm just shooting like there's a pretty sunrise. That's a cool peak. You know, it's composed well or so I think it is. It looks fun to look at, but it's a standalone pretty picture. And I guess you could say a decoration, if you will. It's, it is hard. <laughs> it is hard on a standalone landscape image to uh, tell a story. And I don't know how possible storytelling is with single images. Uh-huh. I think 
more often when people say the word storytelling, they're kind of talking about how you how you view an image, how your eyes wander through it. I don't know if you can really storytell with a single landscape image. It's kind of, you know, but you put a body of work together and you certainly tend not you certainly can tell a story. Now that body of work could be a collection of pretty pictures of a region that you maybe compose similarly or you have some sort of theme going on, but mm-hmm. it is kind of hard. I mean, I think you can tell a better story with a series that has more personal meaning or meaning to a broader group of people. So mm-hmm. it's kind yeah. of, it's quite a challenge with just the single pretty picture. We all fall into that trap with landscape photography. Yeah. And I liked what you said about thinking about how you can create a series of images that maybe can together tell a story. I think that's something that, um, a lot of the older kind of film photography Mm -hmm. uh, generation, I want to use that word loosely, but you know, people that grew up shooting film, I feel like for whatever reason have, I don't know how to say this, but it seems like their work tends to go that direction more than the digital photography does. I'd say so. I think we are chasing, um, we're chasing a lot of icons, though not necessarily. I mean, there are a lot of people going out to unique places, but I think a lot of us have this mindset, we're going to go somewhere for five days and we're trying to come back with that one image. I think we're looking for epic to beat out the last epic. I think we're trying to make something truly (laughs) astonishing. And quite often we pull away with this one image of that was the cool sunset. That was boom. That was everything, you know? But I don't know if it really connects. And I think the older photographers would – there might be someone who would go backpacking in one mountain range of Colorado every July for two weeks at a time for 10 years in a row. And over – I don't think everyone – I don't think these film guys really made a project in one or two times. I think it was decades of experience. And they had these similar compositions. And after several – after a whole decade, they had a – you know, set with some continuity there that worked from a certain area. And some guys set out to make quicker projects as well, whether they spent three months in one region, really getting their emotions out through photos. So there's just a lot of different ways to go about it. But I think we are kind of chasing the instant epic right now. Hmm. That That's interesting. I, I, I think... I I don't know about you, but I've really struggled with that because I want, um, you know, when I started photography, it was kind of about that. It was like chasing, chasing the epic photos that spoke to me. And so to a large degree, most of the time, that's still kind of what I'm doing. But I've found myself gravitating more mentally towards trying to find a way to have a more meaningful body of work that tells a story. And I think one of the things you just said that kind of hit, hit the nail on the head for me was that takes time if you want to. Yeah, I do think it there really right. is a lot more time than we realize. So it is, you know, it, we we look back and see these bodies of work, and I'm not sure we always know how much time was involved in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I've been taking, I've been making photographs for about a decade, and I feel like I barely just started. <laughs> I know yeah. there's always something new. I've been doing large format for um, about 12 years now. And same thing, I feel like, and you look back on the stuff from 10 years ago and you're like, hmm, interesting what I was doing back then. And then sometimes you kind of, <laughs> sometimes you realize you're doing the same thing still. You're chasing pretty pictures. And I get in the mountains and I feel like I get a little bit back into that chasing pretty pictures. But what I think that this prairie stuff has been doing for me is it's really kind of changed how I compose in the mountains a little bit. I really am looking for these 
I, I want my compositions from all of my images to kind of flow together, whether they were the mountains or the prairie. So I want these, I make rather center heavy images. I've been always, I've been on that for quite a while where it's not necessarily like you just boom, put something in the center, but your eyes gravitate towards the center, especially mm-hmm. I think that changes when you go to print it, you make a five foot print of it, a four by five foot print, and you stand in front of it and your eyes, you know, are just, I just want them to move towards the center, whether it's pulling in from different compositional elements, but kind of gravitate towards the middle there. And I want my compositions, whether prairie or mountain, have some similarities to that. So yeah, I actually noticed that about your work as well. And it doesn't, I mean, I, I like, I think the rule of thirds is awesome, but I actually like it when people do center heavy mm-hmm. images. And I, I, sometimes I wonder too, if that's just inherent in the nature of that, that format four by five, you know, it that definitely aspect seemed, ratio. Yeah, yeah. The aspect ratio. And I think the cameras themselves, I mean, you look at this grid on the ground glass and it just works so well sometimes. To, and it's not like everything's just boom center, but especially on the prairie, I usually put my general subject in the middle. The horizon may be a little further down towards the third or the top might be, you know, there might be some cloud or sky interest going on in the top third or so. But generally, it's center heavy. And I do think that four by five, similar with six by six, I think you do a little more of that. And the four by five is a pretty fat rectangle. So you end up kind of composing a little more heavy in the center. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I think it works really well, though, especially for that aspect ratio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think with two by three, it's a little, it's a different story. I think, you know, you're almost, it's kind of an unusual ratio when it comes to putting stuff in the center. So, yeah, I find myself uh, more recently, I, I'm cropping more to four by five um, or trying to, you know, when I'm taking the photo in the field, I'm thinking of it more of a four by five. So I might do like a, like a vertical two by three panorama of two photos and then I'll, you know, yeah. stick it. And then that basically becomes four by five. Yeah. Real high resolution, you know, four by five shot there. Yeah, works, exactly. Yeah. yeah it works yeah. quite well. And yeah. also I end up, um, and it's not necessarily the nature of large format. It's been a little more the way I've moved over the last decade. I don't, you know, in the wilderness, I don't get so low to the ground anymore. I think there was that, you know, get the flower six inches from the lens kind of thing and use some tilt and get it all in focus and have mm-hmm. this giant, giant flower or rock or whatever in the foreground. I'm almost always at eye level or maybe down to the chest or so. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm usually kind of up there, even with the wide angle lenses. I kind of think, I think large format is part of that, but you're just drawing the whole scene in a little bit more and you're using more of the mid ground to make leading lines into the center there, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is something you can't really do. If you get so low, you don't have that mid ground at all. Right. Yeah, that's definitely true. The mid mid ground gets kind of dominated by what's in the foreground. <laughs> yeah, or straight up covered up by it. You know, especially if you have a stream with like an S curve. If you get too low, you just straight up lose it because the foliage around the stream or whatever makes it disappear essentially. Right. Yeah, it's funny. We um, I, I found especially kind of more recently, like you know, the big one of the biggest trends right now in landscape photography that I've found, or at least it seems to be what people are gravitated towards not only in you know social media but also uh, magazines um, mm-hmm. is kind of that big uh, big foreground element with usually you can tell that it's probably a focal length blend where they're they're yes. taking like a huge wide format or sorry um, wide angle, photo of the foreground and then they're blending in a, a medium a medium or short telephoto of the mountains in the back or something like right. that and yeah it just looks like everything is just big and in your face 
Yes. And, and it's just a, it's an interesting trend that I think we've found ourselves. I actually saw a, um, I'm relatively active on Twitter and, uh, one of my, um, actually former podcast guest, Chuck Kimmerly posted a screenshot of all of the, the past 12 months of covers of the, oh, that's uh, interesting. of landscape photography magazine, which is a digital magazine. Yeah. And every single photo was just like that. I mean, it was like formulaic. Uh, boom foreground, boom mountain, and yep. you know, to hell with the middle ground, pretty much. So <laughs> it's yep. just kind of these two. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be composite most of the time, and you can kind of tell it is. It's just kind of this impossible angle for the most part. Yeah, it's. I mean, unless you're shooting film, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, it's not terribly possible to create an image like that out of a single photograph. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah. Um, I just think that's an interesting thing. And I think um, I was curious as someone who's been shooting film for a long time, um, I'm sure you have seen those trends kind of evolve over time in the landscape photography world. And um, what I found is a lot of the film photographers seem to kind of, I don't want to say they're stuck, but like they kind of have, they have stuck to their kind of methods of, taking images that tend to be a little bit more intimate. Um, They tend to not rely so heavily on some of those techniques where you're, you know, everything is like kablammo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. More traditional, Um, a more traditional approach, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was just curious, like, what is your perspective on all of that? Oh, I'd, I'd absolutely agree. I mean, it's not that we're necessarily stuck in our ways, but we are kind of like this little group that definitely um, keeps doing things the way it's been done for a while. Though I think some of us are kind of pushing boundaries a bit. Uh, you, you are right. A lot of them lean, especially large format. You see a lot of intimate, which the format works really well for that. You know, just these right. close up, close up forest scenes. You know, one reason is it takes a lot longer to do a large format photo and the 30 seconds of epic sunset light is a true challenge with the format. I mean, you have to be ready well ahead of time and hopefully you're pointing in the right direction. You know, it's just not easy, easy to, you know, if you have to move the camera during the moment of sunset, you know, it's too late. You're done. Mm-hmm. So I think you see a lot of the intimate stuff without sky in it at all. You see a lot of that kind of stuff in um, Zion and, uh, you know, even fall. Color. I mean, I love doing it, you know intimate aspen shots in the fall of colorado it was just amazing or i went out east this year and did a lot of stuff out in the foggy forest of shenandoah Mm -hmm. and it was quite amazing but what you see more with the digital is like you're right you're kind of you have that opportunity to catch the epic sunset you are kind of getting this you know pow bam everything there though i'm not sure we're necessarily stuck i try i'd actually try i really aim for grand scenics in my photos come out it's my favorite when a grand scenic comes together when i'm backpacking and it's just this you know wide angle shot and it all just works it is just difficult on large format it's really mm. doesn't always work that well and you know quite often like i said you're pointing the camera in the wrong direction but <laughs> <laughs> right because you're we composing have... well before the light is getting really good and then you're basically just hoping that it all comes together yeah. And, you know, luckily, you know, you can usually you get a good idea of what's happening. You see that gap on the horizon or oh, you, for th- sure. you think you think there's one back there like, well, it's focusing this way. And, you know, kind of sometimes a composition is the most important a little bit. If the light as long as some sort of light happens, as long as it gets pretty good, you can end up with a pretty strong image. But the composition is really kind of how you tell your story of the image. 
So, well, I think that's what's interesting too about a lot of uh, film photographers is that they tend to have a much stronger uh, compositional toolkit. You know, I, I, when I look at a lot of film photographers' work, I'm always uh, uh, drawn to their composition being, you know, strong in almost every image that I see. Yeah, I think we have to really, you know, we have we have to spend so much more time working on it. It doesn't it doesn't mean you can't. You obviously can get outstanding compositions with digital. So the format doesn't necessarily mean that. But I think that we are composition heavy. We're probably composition ahead of light when it comes to landscapes because we have more control over composition than the light. Mm-hmm. And I just think I think we can't react quickly to light the way digital people can. So we're kind of stuck on our composition, which hopefully we spent the time to make really strong. And we have to have these. I mean, you can't walk around with a four by five camera in front of your face and find images. It just, you, you can't, it doesn't work that way. So right. you, need, you need to know exactly where you want the camera to be, you know, exactly how high, exactly how various elements, you know, how there might be a, a tr- how a tree might interact with a rock, that exact angle, you know, how you move the camera a couple inches, how much that can vary. So you have to have that exact figured out before you even pull out the tripod, ideally. So mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. in the day, people would walk around with a mat board with a four by five, you you know, hole cut in it and they would use their face, you know, they'd pull they'd hold it away from their face and look through it and kind of determine different focal lengths and have a composition all figured out. Uh, and they make little, you know, um, they make little ones you can carry around your neck that have a four by five aspect ratio and you can use that as a viewfinder tool. What we have now with some of the digital advancements is people are using cell phone apps such as like viewfinder two or something like that, which gives you all of your focal lengths for four by five on your iPhone. And then, I use a little micro four thirds digital camera as my compositional tool. So it's got a zoom lens that covers all of my four by five lenses. So I know exactly what focal length on that little camera coming, you know, corresponds to a four by five focal length. So I can find exactly how I want to compose my image and the four by three ratio of that camera is pretty close to four by five. So I can exactly compare it and it works really well. Uh, it's funny when I was in uh, Yosemite recently, they had a bunch of uh, little um, mat, cut out mats of four by five and two by three ratio that you could borrow for the day or take with you. They call them, well, Ch- Charlie Kramer was there and they call them Kramer framers. <laughs> but uh, it was funny seeing all the participants walk around with these little, you know, mat cutouts of two by three. Uh, taking it framed. back, you know, to, you know, just look at the composition without even having a camera really. Yeah. I mean, I've, I personally have been doing that for a long time, just using my, my hands, you know, like, yeah. But uh, I actually take it a step further because um, I'm a total dork and a nerd. In fact, one of the people I was with was like, I've never seen anyone do that. <laughs> what? And what I do is like, I'll actually look, I'll actually create like a, like a, a squished like panorama type frame in front of my oh, eye yeah. with my hands so that I can see maybe this could make an interesting pano. You know, I'll do. Absolutely. Well, I mean, like I yeah. actually hold my fingers out, you know, like the old Vogue photographer thing. You know, I hold my fingers out and I do it in a pano when I'm looking for panoramas. You know, I really do that. It works, you know. So. Yeah, it works really well. Yeah. And I do that for telephoto stuff too. I'll kind of put my hands a little bit further out and make yep. my fingers a lot smaller so that it's a tighter window. And uh, yeah, it's I, it works pretty good for me. I don't know. It's a pretty good compositional tool. I mean, it's been it, there's a reason it's been the way it has forever. It works. <laughs> uh, and uh, for panoramas, sometimes I'll use a cell phone app I have that just shows like a you know three to one ratio, so I can kind of just kind of you know, especially in the Aspen Forest, I like to just wander around with that oh, yeah. and get an idea. Or sometimes just the fingers, it just kind of feeling things out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, dude, let's talk about. Um, 
backpacking with large, large format because yeah. I, do, I do a ton of backpacking. Um, and I used to, I used to be a Nikon shooter and I'd have like the, the D 800 and 14 to 24, seven, 24 to 70, 70, 200 the 70, yeah the brick of the 70 to 200 you know three two or three pounds or whatever that is right there probably more yeah, yeah i was that, stupid and had the f2 not the f4 <laughs> yeah yeah and, it was painful i mean i was carrying like 20 pounds of stuff around with me which i'm sure you're like oh that's nothing so you know, yeah i think a lot of it is almost all of us when we start backpacking i didn't grow up backpacking it would have been you know my my parents we lived in the mountains but they were both from you know, the Eastern part of the country or so. And my, you know, my, my mom grew up on a farm, so they would be outdoors all the time, but you know, you don't really need to camp if you're on a farm, you're pretty much, you know, camping all day, every day. So we didn't really camp a whole lot. Camping was throwing a tent up in the backyard. It was once I was on my own that I realized I like these road trips with camping. And then in my early twenties, I started backpacking and pretty much all of us you know, from that method start backpacking wrong. We carry way too much, you know, that's oh, number yeah. one. So, and back then I had a Toyo field four by five camera, which is an all metal. I mean, it's a great camera. It's really, it's, yeah, it's really quick to operate, but unfortunately it's six and a half pounds for just the camera itself um and then i carried all four of my lenses as i didn't think i could miss out on a focal length so i had um my lens is a 75 a 90 a 135 and 210 which is kind of like from tw- um 24 to 70 millimeters essentially i had that full mm-hmm. range there so i would carry all of those and um the, you know large format lenses are pretty small actually so you know the heaviest one is a pound and a half most of them are under a pound so mm-hmm. really not you know of the ones i have so that's nice. They're not too big. But then there's the film holders. So we have these film holders. We have to load up in the dark and they hold two sheets of film each. And I thought I had to carry 10 of those. So I had 20 shots. And those things, you know, really, I, I think about three of them as a pound or so. And, it, you know, maybe maybe they're probably almost two and a half of them as a pound. So it adds up, you know, if you're carrying an extra four or five pounds in film holders just because of it. So I was just doing everything wrong. And then the filter kit. So there's a lot of weight. I think I didn't ever weigh my backpack. I didn't really want to know. Um, <laughs> I was doing a little two-nighter with David Kingham several years ago, and he had this luggage scale. And he's like, I mean, he saw me going to put my backpack on. He's like, Jesus, what do you got in there? And he puts this luggage scale on. He's 72 pounds for a, for a two nighter trip. And I'm like, what? you know, that's with the tent and everything. And I'm like, that does sound like quite a bit. That's <laughs> way, <laughs> way too much. So, I mean, and, uh, that was, it was, you know, going seven miles was painful. Sure. I had everything I had wanted with me, but it, I was so wore out when I got there. And I actually don't think I got too many shots that I liked backpacking for the first many years that I did it. And I think it was uh-huh. because I was just plain beat up when I got there. Yeah. So, you know, I started getting smarter. Um, I got the, uh, you know, wooden camera instead, which weighs only three pounds. And then instead of bringing four lenses, I bring one, two, maybe a third really small one. If I if I have a 300 millimeter now that's really tiny, so it hardly adds anything if I want to do some long focal length stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so really just usually one or two lenses. It's, you know, one wide and one kind of standard focal length. And mm-hmm. so I, instead of bringing 10 film holders, I bring three, four max. Instead of bringing five different film types, I just use one, maybe two. So I've really trimmed down the camera kit to where include in a smaller tripod. So including the tripod, I'm at 15 pounds of camera stuff, which I think is pretty good for large format backpacking. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I think so, that's probably in the ballpark of where I would be at if I brought my stuff. Yeah, because when it comes down to it, you know, those beefy digital lenses aren't very light either. So, you know, a 70 to 200 or even a 24 to 70 is usually got some heft to it. So I think we can get our large format kits down pretty well. And you could go under 15 pounds probably. I could get some 
uh, not too much more weight. I could get some slightly lighter film holders, but really just trimming down the number of film holders. I mean, it was it was just way too much stuff I was carrying. So I can fit all of the stuff into like a medium f-stop ICU, and you know, just have the tripod on the outside of the bag. And then I actually now instead of strapping on sleeping bags and pads and tents to the outside, it fits inside the bag. I mean, it used to look like I was carrying a you know piano on my back. It was just it was wider than me, and it was ridiculous. So now it's it's so much more proper and. Uh, I think the last time I weighed, I was, you know, with enough food for like six days. I was still at like 48 pounds, but I'm, oh, I'm trying to get down. Yeah, yeah. And that's, the, you know, for a two-nighter, I'm probably under 40 pounds. So just yeah, don't need to bring nearly as much stuff. So that's That sounds like more kind of a, what I'm doing these days as well. I try to stay between 30 and 40 pounds most times. Yeah. And now I get up there and I have energy, you know, it's just so much better. And I can actually create images and think about it instead of just thinking about sleeping and hurting. So it's, yeah, it's a, a lot it's better. Act, it's actually interesting. Um, when I was in Yosemite, I got the chance to do some teaching with Alex Noriega. And we got paired together to do this like really big hike uh, to Upper Yosemite Falls. And we had a couple of people that went with us, um, to, a couple of brave souls to, to hike up there with us. And it was an interesting conversation I had with Alex about, um, you know, he feels that if he has to take, if he has to make a lot of physical effort to to get to a place and make a photograph, it's actually really hard for him. And I might be, I might be speaking for him a little bit liberally here, so mm-hmm. I'm sure he'll send me a hate mail. But yeah, uh, <laughs> that's what he's good for. Yeah, no. <laughs> basically, like if he's exhausted by the end of the trip or the the effort that was required to get to the location was too much, he's actually not in a state of mind where he can actually ex- have the highest amount of creativity. No, that's um, absolutely true. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, well, like anytime I've gotten, you know, I, I do a lot of sunrise hikes in nearby Rocky Mountain National Park. And sometimes you time it just right. Sometimes the hike took you 20 minutes longer than you thought. And you're arriving right at sunrise and you're still panting and you're just, right. you know, you just hiked four miles and you're kind of beat up. And you, getting there a half hour earlier is so much more your mindset changes entirely as you just recover a little bit. And then you can actually compose an image and you're not just, you know, dying to catch some air at 10,000 feet. So it's a much, much different experience. And same goes if you overexert yourself, you're mentally overexerting yourself as well. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, One of the things that I've been doing since I took up photography um, is, I, you know, I climb all the, a lot of mountains. I've climbed the highest 100 mountains in Colorado. Yeah, you're a mountain goat, aren't you? You're all over down there in Southwest. So yeah. Yeah. And I remember the first time I had a digital camera with me and I was able to get to the top at sunrise. It was for, I was on top of Wetterhorn Peak and um, I had crested the summit just as the sun was beginning to crest the horizon. And I was scrambling around like crazy and also out of breath, you know? Yeah. And, and I made some okay images, but, you know, looking back on it, if I would have had an extra 10 or 15 minutes to, you know, kind of think about how I wanted to do it, it would have resulted in some much better images. <laughs> yeah, it would have been a game changer. Because I think when you're worn out, you're like, oh, pretty sunrise point camera somewhere, you know, you just... Pretty like, much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, whatever consolation prize will work, you know, you're just taking an image at that point. Exactly. But you really, you don't have the mental capacity to really make something unique. Yeah, yeah. Well, I kind of wanted to to go back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier around, you know, the differences and trends between what film photographers are typically doing and the more kind of avant-garde, 
digital photographers that are doing manipulation and compositing and things like that. Right. I'm curious, like from your perspective uh, on the film side of things, do you feel like there's a way that we can kind of bridge the gap between those two styles of landscape photography? Because I do feel like there's somewhat of a schism there. Um, and I'm wondering kind of like purists on one side and go all out, do anything on the other, if you will. Yeah, exactly. And I'm just curious if there's a, if there's a way to, um, you know, without just saying, eh, just do what you want. I'll do what I want. Everything's cool. If there's a way to, I don't know, to proactively try to bring those two worlds together. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we are kind of passing the point of realism in landscapes and partly because nearly every landscape on Earth seems to have been captured in some way at this point. So we're kind of running out of the old way of doing things in some ways. But there's always a new light or a new composition or take on something. And I think a lot of us film guys are exploring how do we keep photographing the same landscapes while making it our own without doing a whole bunch of computer stuff because we can't really for the most part. I mean, of course, you could scan in film and do anything you want to it. Of course, you could Photoshop it as desired, I guess. But not too many of us tend to do that because we enjoy the film aspect of it. So you do end up finding these purists on one side. And then there's digital photographers that don't manipulate anything. And then there's ones that feel like the art is probably their artistic expression is um, expression is probably the most important, which I understand, to be honest. Uh, if you want to make something that is a unique piece of impressionist art almost out of a photograph, there's really nothing wrong with that. And I do think it's kind of probably as things will continue to go that way more. I don't know how you really connect the two. I think, it, as you said, it's kind of all like you do your thing, you, I'll do mine. But I don't know if that's really the right way about it. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily know that I have the answer myself. I do tend, I, I, I feel like at some point, if you're taking six images from various locations and different camera angles and you're creating a, an art, creating artwork out of it, I don't think people are going to get mad, but I don't really necessarily think that's landscape photography anymore. It's um, artwork. It's, it's, it's art. It's, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there's nothing it wrong with all, that it distinction. Was made, yeah. It was made with a photographic medium and it, it is artwork still. Cause a lot of it takes a lot of skill and you know a lot of craft in it but we're almost looking at a painting of sorts which is okay it's artwork but it, um right. like you said it's almost like you want to see some disclosure on whether or not it's a landscape because it's not really a landscape if you will right. so and not a, it's not a true representative landscape you know of any real place at that point right so. and and i i like i <laughs> i don't i have nothing wrong with that but um i don't think it's necessarily accurate or fair to call that landscape photography any longer. Yeah. And I think that's where the divide becomes because I think a lot of those individuals think of themselves as landscape photographers. Um, yeah, they're, out, and, they're out, they're out there in the landscape and they're photographing it. Right. Um, and then they're making artwork out of it once they get back home. Right. So, right. So it and is I, kind of a different, you know, in one sense they are landscape photographers in another sense, they are making digital art. So I guess mm -hmm. they're kind of, kind of doing both. So, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. It, it would almost be like a one one of the I guess translations that I like to use or equivalencies is kind of you know in in filmmaking the filmmaking world, 
mm-hmm. if you were to have uh, an Academy Award category for uh, best best cinematography in a documentary, and then someone submitted a Marvel uh, Avengers <laughs> movie to that category and said, "This is uh, this is my cinematography in a documentary." Um, I it seems like a different, you know, it's a different I world. I don't think the people that make the documentaries would be super stoked about that. Um, no, I see what you're saying. Cause you know, say you're scrolling through Instagram and you see these digital photos that while have, while they, they have the beauty to them are bam, bam. Like you said, you know, they just kind of, everything is just perfect in them. And then you continue to scroll and you see this film photography, which doesn't quite have always that, um, intense pop to every single part of it because there's a little more realism to it Mm -hmm. and i do think maybe we could be almost outshined these days perhaps but i don't know i think a lot of people enjoy seeing that realism too i think sometimes the further you push away from realism some people start to realize how awesome the reality is Mm -hmm. yeah no i think there's definitely a market for both uh both forms of art i just don't Mm -hmm. consider them the same form of art yeah yeah i think i'd agree with that um and I think that's where the distinction lies for me anyways. Like I don't I don't want to be compared to an art form that I'm not doing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're like, I'm not in that camp, you know, I'm not doing that stuff, so don't really compare me to it. Well, and I, I feel like me personally, I'm kind of uniquely po- poised to make statements like that because I used to do all that kind of stuff all the time. And so mm-hmm. um and I didn't you know, I had no problem with it. So I've, I've been in both camps. And so I feel like there is a distinction between the two approaches. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's, uh, I want to have, give you some time to talk a little bit about your, I think you have two eBooks actually. And I wanted to learn more about what you cover in your eBooks and then how can people find out more about that? Yeah, so uh, my first ebook I made was photographing the planes, and it's not necessarily about just the planes. It's about how to find subjects close to home, because mm-hmm. I think I hear a lot of people talk about how um, you know where they photograph, where they live has nothing to photograph. And I mean, you live in Southwest Colorado, so you really can't make that argument by any means. <laughs> <laughs> but, right? I really can't. You're right. Yeah, but I think that no matter where you live, I'm not sure you can truly make that argument. I think there is something you have to go look for. Not everywhere screams at you like the mountain village or something like that, but there is something everywhere to be photographed, and that's kind of what that book was about. Because I just, I think I've heard a lot of people refer to where they live as a flyover state or something without interest, and I, I think I argue with that notion. I think that if you get out there with your camera, you'll find something. I mean, I, I just. I'm not the kind of guy that puts my camera down for a few weeks. I just always have to go shoot. I just, no matter what. So that is how my local shooting really started. And that's the premise of that book. That's a little bit um, old. It's, an, it's a brief book. It's um, only 10 bucks. It's a kind of just good inspirational book with some good trip tips too. So then the other book is my big, everything I know about film put into one book. It's a big 180 page book. It's called Film in a Digital Age. And that is meant for people of all skill levels, whether they're getting started in film or they want to learn more about modern process with a film. Because a lot of that is how do you deal with film today? What do you do about digitizing it? How do you how do you keep an edge with film? Because I do think there are some things, you know, if you don't scan film very well, you can end up with these images that kind of look meh. But I mean, really, you end up you can have a great image out of film that really stands up and I think keeps up with modern digital work. 
So that's what that book is all about. Everything I know about film put into one book. That's a great reference. That's awesome, dude. Um, I, I find myself at least mentally more and more drawn to the process of producing images through the film techniques, just because of how it forces you to slow down, focus on composition. Um, and I think there are some advantages to shooting on film that are very difficult to realize in the digital world, including, you know, depth of field and mm -hmm. things of that nature. I mean, of course you can do focus stacking and, you know, you can get a tilt shift lens and all of those things, but uh, I feel like film just does it right. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, there is. And, and it's not so much in these technical ways. One of the biggest questions I get in my art show booth, once someone figures out that I'm shooting film is they say, how do you think film compares to the latest Fuji, da, 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 150 megapixel? And I'm like, look, I, I mean, first of all, I don't have one of those. I don't compare them. And um, second of all, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, there's not very many technical edges in film. I mean, it is old. It does not have high ISO settings. It cannot do the Milky Way shots. It, there's so much it cannot do. Mm -hmm. Um, I absolutely love using it regardless. And I even think we're coming to a point where, I mean, if you took a Fuji hundred megapixel thing and you did a 10 shot stitch and made a big four by five, you know, image out of it, you would blow away the resolution of four by five film if you were stitching and stuff like that. I mean, from a technical standpoint and you could focus stack and get everything in focus. Um, for me, there's just this process, about I don't have to stitch 10 images together when I get home. I don't have to <laughs> do, I, I, you know, set the camera up, throw a bit of tilt on there. I love the depth of fields. Um, you know, there is more getting everything in focus doesn't always matter so much because I mean, mm -hmm. when we, when we tilt a lens on a large format camera, we're changing the focal plane, but we are not magically focus stacking and getting everything in focus. We still right. have out of focus regions. For but sure. The flower bush in the foreground is in focus. The peak is in focus. The midground may be a little soft in areas. Um, mm -hmm. kind of a little more natural view. There's some things there that I think it's it's uh, when everything in, is in focus, you're kind of like this doesn't look like my eyes at all. It's di very different and unnatural in some ways. And I, th I think it's okay. I mean, with film, I just get it right in one shot, which is part of the goal. I love that. You know, like I go, went to like Glacier for uh, 10 days or so. And I think I had, you know, like 50 frames of four by five from 10 days of shooting. And I love that I don't have thousands of images to go through and weed out when I get home. So it's a lot easier to go through 50 and find the 10 strong ones out of it or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's just a lot that I love about it. I don't think I would really enjoy uh, digital as much. I just don't think it would entertain me as much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because, again, one of the more appealing aspects to film for me is this idea that you're connecting more with the landscape in person because you're having to spend more time uh, creating the image uh, in the field, you know? Yes, yeah, Whereas, that I'd say it's true. Yeah, I think in digital, I can go out and I can, you know, throw my camera on a tripod, do some focus stacking. It probably took half as much time as I would if I was shooting film. And, it, you know, you, you, I don't know. I think it there is some part of that that disconnects you from the experience of being there. Yeah. Um, at least for me, I, I, maybe other people will be like, no, that's not my experience, which is fine. But yeah, like, you know, don't get me wrong. Like we're still, 
involved with the camera because we're doing all this weird stuff under a dark cloth and focusing with a loop and messing with the lens and, you know, making sure all the steps work before we put the film in, which ends up flowing once you have any experience with large format, all of that stuff becomes second nature and it just it's muscle memory at that point. So you can start to connect a little more with the nature. And what I, I mean, I do like this this device that has no batteries, this no technology, really very little technology in it. You know, it's just a very simple device that we capture images with. And there's something fun about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Cool, man. Well, uh, I guess kind of last question. What, uh, who, who do you think our listeners would enjoy uh, hearing from on the podcast or, or checking out their, their body of work? Right. Well, I think um, I've got a couple fun ones here. I think uh, uh, first and foremost would be my, good friend Lance Roth. Uh, he has, um, I mean, he's been a photographer of all sorts of different types from digital to, well, okay, I'll start with his digital stories. He was, he had this, you know, a Canon 5D whatever for a while and he started kind of chasing the sharpness, you know, he's realizing that it's just too, sh- not sharp enough. He moved on to a Nikon system and he's like, ah, oh, that wasn't quite right. Then he switched to Sony. He's like, what am I doing here? He got rid of all of it and started shooting with a wooden box with a pinhole. And, you know, and he just he just took this total, you know, 100 year back step pretty much right there and just went full simplicity. And, you know, he's just and so he, he'll go backpacking with me with just this pinhole camera. I mean, his camera kit is six ounces plus a tripod, <laughs> you know, and he's just shooting medium format roll film with a pinhole, no lens at all. And you realize you start to think about back, you know, what really is art? Does sharpness make art at all? You know, you really start to think about how. It doesn't have to be sharp to be art. And he makes these stunning pinhole images. No matter how big you blow them up, they're the same amount of blurry, but the composition is there. The colors are there. It's a beautiful image. And instead of just shooting pinholes, you know, in some weird location or just kind of nowhere, most people kind of shoot pinhole in their own house or whatever, but he goes backpacking, goes outdoors with it. I think he'd be a really fun person to have on um, kind of, you know, and he's also going through, um, he's a new father. He's a recent father. So he's a, kind of going through the struggles of photography while, you know, raising a family and such like that. So he'd be an interesting person to talk to. So um, I think Mike Basher would be a stunning person to have on for his black and whites. And I'm not much of a black and white guy, but I really admire his black and whites. They're truly, um, they're simple. They're amazing. He has this thing he calls a research vessel. It's like this little, looks like a home built dinghy that he goes around in these like swamps of, I think he's possibly in the Carolinas or so. And he just, um, then he finds these trees and does these, you know, long exposures on black and white film. And it's just so incredibly smooth and so minimal. They're just stunning. Huh. So, that sounds yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So you can see him on Instagram, uh, Mike Basher. And then um, Ryan uh, Gillespie, I think I'm saying his name right. Um, he does, um, he's a black, black and white guy as well, but he does like platinum palladium prints. So he uses eight by 10 and four by five film. And he makes these, he does them all at home. He has this, I mean, watching, he'll do little Instagram stories where he's pouring the chemicals. And that's when, once you've done the, <laughs> yeah. And the image just shows up right away. It's like, Oh, it's just amazing. You know, the brush stroked on platinum palladium edges and all that. And he's not doing the digital type platinum palladium. He is doing it straight from negatives that I believe he develops for the sake of platinum palladium printing, which means they're kind of useless for other reasons once you do that, as far as my knowledge goes. So he's definitely in that sort of, he's doing it for that purpose and they're quite impressive. So those are my recommendations. Cool, man. That's that, that, those are some interesting ones. I'm really excited to go check out their work and I'll, I'll put links to their uh, websites or whatever in the show notes for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. 
Awesome, man. Well, this has been a, a lot of fun. Um, I really appreciated talking to you and getting your perspectives on the state of landscape photography. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely, man. All right. Well, thanks to Alex for joining me on the podcast this week for a great discussion. And uh, really love checking out your work. I think it's it's a really cool to see you taking on a, a subject that not a lot of people are doing. So appreciate that. And I really hope we can all think about how we can bridge the divide between film and digital. All right. Well, I did want to remind you that you too can join in on the conversation about each podcast episode over on NPN. NPN, or Nature Photographers Network, is the premier community for landscape and nature photographers like you. Over on NPN, you can interact with some of the top names in the industry, get honest and thoughtful critiques on your images, and read some of the most engaging and stimulating articles on the internet that relate to our craft. Better yet, listeners of the podcast can get a 60-day free trial to NPN. Just follow the link in the episode notes. Also, thank you to our latest supporters over on Patreon, including Andrew Hawkins and Johnny Dabbler. The Patreon supporters are literally keeping the show afloat. I recently paid over $2,000 for various costs relating to the podcast, so your generosity is critical for keeping the show going. I appreciate you. Well, there's a mighty group of supporters over on Patreon that have been supporting the podcast at a higher level, and we like to call them our podcast producers. They help shape the direction of the show through Google Hangouts that I host, and they have exclusive access to talking with me, which I don't know if it's that exclusive, but it's fun. Fortunately, most of them just make fun of my foibles that I that are exposed on the podcast. P.S. You're the man, Michael Rung. <laughs> All right, well, without further ado, let's give thanks to the following people. If you recognize their names, I'd encourage you to support what they're doing too. I have links to their websites on the podcast page for the show over on my website. And in my opinion, a high tide rises all boats. So thanks to Gary Randall, David Kingham, Danny LeFrancois, Jack Curran, Eric Stenslin, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, James Bakavoy, William Nurse, Anton Everine, Laurie Berenson, Richard Wong, Matthias Joland, Suzanne Mathia, Zachary Smith, Frank Otto Peterson, Ken Dono, Michael Rung, John Whitaker, Jason Clardy, and Jim Valencourt. All right, let's talk about who's coming up on the podcast. So next up, we have Brenda Tharp. She is a well-established travel, landscape, and wildlife photographer residing in the Bay Area. And I just had such a wonderful time recording with her this week, and I think you're going to love that one. Today, I recorded with J. Henry Fair, the winner of my Landscape Photography Conservation Award, and that episode will surely ruffle some feathers. We also have Meizu, a photographer from Colorado with some absolutely stunning work. Uh, Nikolai Alexander, an interior designer living in Denver, Colorado. And I'm hoping to pick his brain on how we photographers can partner better with interior designers. We have Jaron Schneider. He is a filmmaker working in the freelance space. Clay Bolt, a conservation photographer and former president of NAMPA. 
We have John Barclay coming. He's a well-known photographer who leads workshops focused on mindfulness. And lastly, Christian Fletcher, a photographer living down in Australia. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.